turn this morning to Mark chapter 11. We are going to begin in verse 27. While you are turning there, I will remind you of what Jesus said at the very end of the book of Matthew. Matthew records Jesus' words to his disciples when instructing them to go out and preach the gospel to every living person. This is what we call the Great Commission. But just before giving them that commission, he said this in Matthew 28, 18. Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore, knowing that all the authority is given to him, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So Christ said that all authority is given to him and that he has all authority in heaven and earth. The Pharisees are now going to approach Jesus and ask him, where do you get this authority? Why are you able to burst into the temple, overturn tables, drive people out? And then say things like, my temple will be called a house of prayer. How do you get away with that? What is your authority? Then we're going to see a collection of Pharisees, Sadducees, Herodians, scribes are all going to start peppering him with questions, trying to catch him out, trying to trip him up trying to get him to say or do something that they can accuse him with. And so they're going to ask him a series of questions. What I want you to notice is that Jesus never directly answers any of their questions because all of their questions are predicated on the notion that they are his judge and he is in the witness box being cross-examined and he never allows himself to be placed in that position the earliest book in the bible is probably the book of job which hopefully we'll be saying more about pretty soon but at the end of the book of job when he reaches the point of saying if god were here now i would demand of him he'd give me some answers and god shows up And God starts right out with, who is this that darkens my counsel without knowledge? And then follows it up with, I will ask you and you will answer me. Because God is always the authority. And God never allows that he could be put on trial by his creation. His creatures are never invited to test him, to check him, to call him out, to trip him up, or to put him on the stand so that they can act as his judge. Now, this is important to remember when we're talking about Christ publicly because it is just simply human nature that they want you as the representative of Christ. They want you to somehow prove it to them to rise to their standard. They're going to say things to you like, yeah, well, if God is this, then couldn't he that? Like, if he's absolutely sovereign and all-powerful, couldn't he make a rock so heavy that even he couldn't lift it up? And then because that confounds their human logic, they assume that it also confounds your logic, and therefore... It's somehow going to put God on the stand and make God have to give an answer for himself. Now, there is an answer to that question. I know I've said that a couple of times. I've, over the years, I've brought up that question. And in case you're pondering it right now, gee, could God make a rock so big that even he couldn't pick it up? There are two answers to that. Answer number one is yes, but he's not that stupid. Answer number two is God is perfectly comfortable with paradox, 
which means that he could make a rock so heavy he couldn't lift it, and then he would lift it, and the two things would not contradict each other. That's the way God operates. He is not withheld by our concepts of human logic. So when people try to put God on trial, when they try to put Christ on trial, the correct answer is exactly what Paul offers us in Romans chapter 9. Paul's answer is when people say, well then, about God, how does he find fault seeing as how nobody has resisted his will? Do you hear the inherent ego in that question? The inherent Assumption is, I, the human, have the right to ask God why he does things the way he does them. And Paul's answer is, who are you? Paul's answer is the same as God's answer was to Job. Who is this that darkens my counsel without knowledge? Paul's answer is, who are you to answer against God? And then Paul goes on to say that the thing formed, in other words, the creature, doesn't say to the potter, why are you making me like this? All, all you have to know about clay is that clay gets made into whatever shape, whatever form, for whatever purpose the potter decides. And this morning... We heard another reference to pottery as Micah was reading Psalm 2. And you see it all the way through the Bible. God says things like, let the potsherds of the earth deal with the potsherds of the earth. Let them struggle with each other. So we're referred to as pottery over and over and over again. Go back to Jeremiah. He's told to go to a potter's house and watch the potter make a work on the wheel. And then he's asked, what do you see? And Jeremiah has to say, it's a potter making a work on the wheel, and God draws the equation, and God says that he can do whatever he wants. Okay, everybody, pause. Go help Marilyn. Talk amongst yourselves. Discuss for a moment with each other. Gee, wasn't that a very good and salient point that Jim just made? None of this counts against my time. No. So, do you all get the basic point? Do you all get the basic premise I'm working on this morning? It is that the Bible never allows that Jesus gets to be put on trial. Even though that is the human egocentric tendency, even though we think we set the criteria on which we judge God and Christ and the Word of God, Nothing in the word of God ever allows that human beings get to put God on trial. Now, that just makes sense. If you are really good at what you do, do you feel it's necessary to give a defense for yourself to people who honestly don't know what they're talking about? Let's say that you're America's leading heart surgeon for just a moment. Now, if you are holding a symposium on heart surgery and Leon walks in and he starts spouting his theories about heart surgery because he's pretty good with a drill. <laughs> okay, how long is it going to take the 
expert heart surgeon to realize Leon don't know what he's talking about. It's going to be instantly. So then is America's leading heart surgeon going to entertain Leon's theories, questions, and especially if Leon starts trying to hold the guy accountable to give an explanation for himself and the things he does, how long is he going to put up with that considering that Leon doesn't know what he's talking about? He's not going to put up with it for... Absolutely. Get out. You don't know what you're talking about. Very same thing with God. God is the absolute sovereign master God is the maker of heaven and earth. God has always existed. God has absolutely exhaustive knowledge of all things. And then there's you. Now, is he going to sit still while you put him on trial? Is he going to allow that you can start asking him questions about who he is, what he does, and how he gets these things done? He's not going to put up with that at all because he is, again, absolutely sovereign. So why would he put up with you? You see, this is inherently the problem with the theology that says you have to make a decision or you have to accept God or that you have to whip up your own faith and then exercise your faith in God. It all starts with the assumption that you, the individual, are the deciding factor in the relationship. But you're not. And you're going to see it today in Mark chapter 11. You're going to see the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and then after that, the Sadducees, and then the Herodians and the scribes, they're all going to ask Jesus questions that are designed to make him defend himself. And he's not going to do it. In fact, he's going to wrap them up in their own logic, and he's never going to give them an answer outside of speaking a parable wherein he is the Son of God sent to the planet, and he predicts that they're going to kill him, which they end up exactly doing. So let's start reading. Now that we have established that Jesus says... That all authority in heaven and earth is given to him, given to him by God, the one who has all the authority. He has given his son all the authority. So we, the disciples of Jesus, we get to know that he has authority and where it comes from. He speaks some parables where he explains to his apostles what those things mean, but he keeps hiding meaning from the Pharisees, from the leaders in Jerusalem, and he's not under any obligation to explain himself to his enemies who just want to catch him out. So he takes authority over them, because after all, he has all the authority. Okay, so Mark chapter 11, verse 27 is where we're beginning. And they came again to Jerusalem. That's Jesus and his apostles. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and scribes and elders came to him. And they began saying to him, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? In other words, explain yourself. You've driven out the money changers. You've overturned the tables. You made a whip out of cords. 
and you ran people out of the temple while proclaiming it was your temple that ought to be a house of prayer, where do you get the authority to do that? They expected that if they, the religious leaders, ask him a direct question like, where do you get this kind of authority that he is obligated to answer them? He doesn't see any obligation. He doesn't have to explain himself to them because, again, the creator does not have to explain himself to the creature. Get that in your head. If you remember nothing else today, remember that the creator does not explain himself to the creature. Us little creatures standing up here on our rear legs just yelling at God like he has to answer us to our sufficient satisfaction. But he doesn't have to. He's God. You're not. And he is fully sufficient and satisfied within himself. If you don't like him, that means nothing to him. In fact, if you don't like him, he's going to make sure you're not in his presence. Eternally. So there is no question, there is no assumption, there is no logic, there is nothing that you can offer that's going to trip God up. But they tried. By what authority do you do these things? Explain yourself. Tell us who you are and where did you get this authority to do these things? Because if you can't answer us sufficiently, then we're going to throw you out of the temple and we're going to show the people that clearly you're not someone to be followed. They're trying to trip him up. Where do you get this authority? And Jesus said to them, I'll ask you one question. Now listen to the genius of this question. You tell me, and then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. Okay, so they want to know by what authority. He says, I'll ask you a question. You answer my question. I'll answer your question. But the question is so well crafted that even they understand the dilemma that the question poses for them. Because verse 31 says, And they began reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say it's from heaven, then he's going to say, Then why didn't you believe him? Okay, that's a problem. You're the religious leaders. And if the baptism of John was from heaven, and we didn't follow John, okay, then the people are going to say, at least he's going to say, well, then why didn't you believe him? But on the other hand, verse 32, but if we say from men, well, then they were afraid of the multitude for all the multitude considered John to have been a prophet indeed, a very genuine, honest prophet they saw him as. Remember what we've been talking about on Wednesday nights as we've been going through the Old Testament historically, we've reached that point where God is silent for 400 years. And it ends, the book of Malachi ends with the promise that God is going to send Elijah. And then John the Baptist shows up in the spirit and the power of Elijah after 400 years. And so the people who were following John the Baptist and Christ recognize him as a very genuine prophet, even 
the ones who weren't all that sure about Christ had to recognize that he was an Elijah-like prophet. There was a prophet in their midst. They have to admit it, and the religious leaders go, how, given all that, do we say that was from men? He just made it up. That's a real dilemma now. If we say from heaven, we're wrong. If we say from men, we're wrong. There's no good answer to the question. So verse 33 says, answering Jesus, they said, we do not know. So Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What did he just do? He made sure that they could not take authority over him, that they could not obligate him to give an answer for himself, to explain himself, to give a defense of himself. Now, notice again, because I'm going to keep stressing this, notice that he does explain to his disciples who he is and where he comes from. And he does explain to those that he chose that he's going to Jerusalem and he's going to be killed and he's going to rise three days later. To the people who he chose, there's all of this revelation of who he is by the miracles that he does and by the authority that he has in this past three and a half years. He's taken authority over sickness. He's taken authority over nature and wind and rain. He's taken authority over religious leaders. He's taken authority over life, death, salvation, and condemnation. When he starts saying things like, you're going to see me sitting on my white throne, dividing the nation, sheep and goats, and determining their eternal destiny based on how they treated my brethren. Because whatever they do to my brethren, they've done to me. Whatever you do to me, that determines your eternal destiny. He has demonstrated through this three and a half years, absolute authority over absolutely everything. Which is why both John and the writer of Hebrews would put Jesus at the very creation of the world and say that he was the logos. He was the speaking agency through which everything was created. So you don't take someone like that and start making him answer your measly little questions. Because I'm convinced if you ever really answered your questions, your head would explode. You're never going to comprehend him. But they wanted to put him on trial. They wanted to make him answer. And he would not do it. Now, he's now going to follow up with a parable. But then they're going to start sending other groups. Scribes, Herodians, like I said, Sadducees are going to come to him and try to trip him up with questions. And you're going to notice that every time he does not fall for the assumption that he has to give an answer for himself or defend himself. And I think that's really, really important to remember when we talk about Christ. When we go out in the world and talk about Christ, people are going to try to put him on trial and require you to defend him to their satisfaction. God never does it. Christ never does it. The Bible never does it. Instead, the correct answer is, who are you? Okay, so chapter 12. He began to speak to them in parables. What was the purpose of parables? So that the other people couldn't understand it. So the other people wouldn't understand. 
his disciples were given some insight to understand, but he's going to speak parables to these Jewish leaders because he's going to cloak some of that understanding. But even though he doesn't explain the parable to us, it's quite easy to understand. So let's read through it, and then we'll talk about the elements of it. He began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a vat under the wine press and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers, and he went on a journey. And at the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. And they took him, and they beat him, and they sent him away empty-handed. And again he sent them another slave, and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and that one they killed. And so with many others, beating some and killing others, he had one more to send, a beloved son. He sent him last of all to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those vine growers said to one another, this is the heir, come, let us kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief corner. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to seize him, and yet they feared the multitude, because they understood that he spoke the parable against them. And so they left him, and they went away. Okay, so what's that parable about? Let's see if we can identify a few of the key elements in the parable. The vineyard, I believe, is the world, the whole world. So then, if that's the case, who would the owner of the vineyard be? God himself, especially since we know that he's going to send his son. So who are the first servants that God sent into the vineyard? Prophets. Prophets. And what did the Jews do consistently to the prophets? Kill them. them. Beat them. Drive them out. Don't listen to them. Ignore them. So Jesus is actually explaining the history of the Jewish leaders to them. And saying in parable, God has sent you servants of his and every one of them you mistreated. But then notice he says, but last of all. Finally, he sends his son. And he sends his son with the expectation, this is my son, they're going to respect him. Now, they haven't killed him yet. But he's there in Jerusalem to be killed. This has been determined since before the foundation of the world that he is going to die on that Passover. 
fulfilling what even John the Baptist, showing himself to actually be a prophet, said when he pointed to Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So he is in Jerusalem to be killed specifically by the Jews. And in this parable, he is telling them, I'm the son of God and you're going to kill me. So he had one last ascent, said verse 6, his beloved son. He sent him last of all and he said, they will respect my son. But those vine growers said to one another, this is the heir. What does he inherit? If he's the heir, the he's going to inherit the vineyard. He's the ruler of the world. This is Jesus one more time saying, I get all the authority. All the authority in heaven and earth is given to me. I'm the heir of everything God has. But they're going to say in their ego and in their presumption of self-importance, they're going to say, let us kill him, and then the inheritance will be ours. We're going to rule the world. We're going to be the leaders of the religion so that we can control the people, so that we can get rich and we can make ourselves all high and mighty. All we got to do is get rid of him. Notice again, they haven't done it yet. They haven't killed him yet, and yet he's saying, you're going to say, let's kill him. And then he talks right through them to their purpose and intention. <clears throat> let's kill him so that we can have the inheritance. So they took him, they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. That's what happens when you die, you leave the world. So what will the owner of that vineyard do? That's a really, really important question. What will God do to you after you kill his only beloved son who is the heir of all things? Do you think he's going to be slightly miffed? <laughs> a little bit upset? He's going to come back in anger and in judgment. Jesus is describing what he's going to go on to say. This temple, not one stone is going to be left standing. And Jerusalem, you that kill the prophets, how often I would have gathered your children as a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. Your house is left to you desolate. He's explaining it all to them in the parable here. What will God do to you? He will come and destroy the vine growers. And then we'll give the vineyard to others. I think, since the church doesn't exist yet, he's speaking eschatologically of the kingdom yet to come. Because ultimately then the vineyard, the whole world, is going to flow to Jerusalem because the son is going to sit on his throne in Jerusalem and the blessings that come onto Jerusalem, onto Israel, are going to spread out to all the nations from there. I think that's what he's referring to. He's going to come and destroy the vine growers, and then he will give the vineyard to others. And then he holds them responsible for what the word says. Notice that he doesn't even say after the parable, you better pay attention to what I'm saying. 
Instead, he holds them responsible for what their own scripture already states. Have you not even read this scripture? I, I think he's calling them out since they tried to call him out. How unaware are you of the scripture? Because it's already been written. The prophets have already said that this thing that is happening right now, me in your midst, you hating me, you ultimately killing me, has been written down in your scripture for a long, long time. Haven't you ever read it? Haven't you ever paid attention to it? Because it says the stone that the builders rejected, this became the chief corner. Everything is built up on me. I'm the chief cornerstone. Everything else is built on the foundation of me. And I'm right here in your midst. And you're going to kill me. This came about, all of it came about from the Lord. That makes me think of Luke writing in the book of Acts and saying that Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Jews and the Gentiles were all gathered together in Jerusalem to do whatever your hand and your purpose foreordained to be done, predestined to be done. This all happened. Christ was on the planet at that moment. Christ was in Jerusalem at that moment. The Pharisees hated him at that moment so that he would die on that Passover, satisfying everything that the prophets had said and satisfying the eternal covenant that God had made with Christ, that Christ was going to have ultimate authority. Every knee was going to bow. Every tongue was going to confess that Jesus Christ is absolute Lord. Kurios, completely in control forever. That came about, says verse 11, from the Lord. And it is. Here's the summation statement, and it's a great summation statement. It is mind-boggling in our eyes. When we see it, when we look at it, when we read it, when we recognize it, when we understand what actually happened and what was going on on earth because of the divine plan of God since before the foundation of the world, when we get some glimpse of that, doesn't it kind of make you just awestruck? <laughs> doesn't it just make you marvel? How did God pull this one off? And he keeps pulling it off and pulling it off every day for the entire history of the world. Absolute authority, absolute control, mind-bogglingly so. Mind-bogglingly so. Say it with me, mind-bogglingly. That's just a fun word. It is marvelous in our eyes. This came about from the Lord. So they, the Pharisees who a moment ago were trying to put him on trial, suddenly realize he's talking about them. He's told that parable against them, and now they're scared. So they leave. Notice what Jesus just did, exercised authority, and did so in such a way that he did not explain himself. He did not answer their questions when they tried to put him on trial. He put them on trial. And they were seeking to seize him, and yet they feared the multitude, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them, 
And so they left him and they went away. Verse 13. And they, the Pharisees, the leaders, sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him. The Herodians are the followers of Herod. In order to set a trap in a statement. Okay, so they've been hoodwinked by Jesus' ruthless logic and absolute authority. So since they haven't made a dent in him, they gather a bunch of other guys. Okay, you go take a shot. You, you go see if you got anything. And they sent some Pharisees and Herodians to him in order to trap him. Remember that when you read their statements. Their statements are for the purpose of trapping him. They're trying to trip him up. They're trying to judge him. So they came to him and they said, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one. Do you feel really buttered up yet? (laughs) We know that you are truthful and you defer to no one, for you are not partial to any but you teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? There's the trick question. So it starts with a little bit of flattery. We know that you're true. We know that you're honest. We know, you know Jesus had to at that moment be thinking, well, if you think I'm so right and true, if you think I'm handling the word of God honestly, why aren't you following me? Why are you still preaching Moses? Why are you still exercising this religious authority over other people? Why aren't you pointing people to me if I'm the one who really knows all these things? You are truthful. You defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. But you teach the way of God in truth. So is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? This was a really pressing political question at the moment. Because remember that Jerusalem is under Roman dominion and Roman authority at the time. And Caesar thinks himself to be deity. Caesar thinks himself to be God. So now they're asking him, should we do obeisance to Caesar? But since we know that the uh, first commandment is you'll have no other gods before me. You know, isn't paying a poll tax to Caesar a way of worshiping Caesar? And so should Jews actually be doing that? Because after all, we're under the political authority of Rome, so politically we're supposed to pay the tax, but religiously, doesn't that interfere with the first commandment? Doesn't that kind of undermine everything you're about since you speak truth about God and everything? You see what they're doing to him? Sometimes because we don't live in first century Jerusalem, We don't understand the import of these questions, but that is a really purposefully tricky question. So watch what Jesus does. Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, in other words, he understands exactly why they're asking this question. They're trying to trip him up. They're trying to test him. They're trying to trap him. And really, there's no easy answer. If you say, yeah, pay to Caesar, well, then they've got him. They get to go to the people that are following him and saying, look, he's not following Yahweh. He says that Caesar is also a god. 
If he says, no, don't pay, that's insurrection against Rome, and it's going to be the destruction of the people. So they're not going to follow him anymore. There's no easy answer here, they think. He says, why are you testing me? That's what I've been saying all morning. That's really my point all morning. Jesus cannot be put on trial. Jesus is not on trial. You are. He's the judge. He's the one who determines your eternal destiny. He's eternally secure regardless of what happens to you. So you don't put him on trial. You don't test him. He tries you. He saves you. He condemns you. And nothing you can do changes that relationship. He's always going to be the authority. He's always going to be Lord and Master. And you're always going to be subject to whatever he says. Like him or dislike him. Accept him or reject him. Follow him or walk away. He's still the authority. And nothing you can say and nothing you can do can change that. So he asked them, why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius. Bring a coin to me. So they brought him one. And he said to them, whose likeness, in other words, whose image, whose face, if you have a coin in your pocket right now, it has somebody's face on it. A penny's got Abraham Lincoln. You, you get you got somebody on all your coins. Whose likeness, whose image, whose inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. So doesn't that mean logically then that that coin belongs to Caesar? It's got his face and inscription on it. So Jesus answers them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Those belong to Caesar. Give him that. But then he says the really radical thing and give to God the things that are God's. In other words, Caesar's not God. Caesar is just a political character. He's the leader of Rome and they have dominion over you right now. And you're using his money with his inscription for your buying, selling, and trading. So you're living in the Roman economy. Therefore, if part of that Roman economy is taxing you, then pay them what you owe them because it's theirs to begin with. But don't ever start to think that that excuses you from giving God what belongs to God. And in this context, where they're trying to trick him, where they're trying to upend him, and where he has just said, I have all authority and I'm the son of God, then what does belong to God that he expects them to give? Remember the parable. God said, I'm going to send my son. They'll respect him. That's what's expected. If you're God's, if you belong to God, then you're going to know the scripture, you're going to follow the scripture, and you're going to give obeisance to Christ. So give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. But give to God the honor and the worship and the dignity and the recognition that belongs alone to God, not to Caesar. And they were amazed at him. 
Yeah, because they just asked him the question that they thought was going to blow him up. They just asked him the question that there's no good answer to. No matter which way he goes, they're going to be able to say to the crowd, see, that's the wrong answer. And he ended up giving them an answer that was so satisfactory and so right and correct that it absolutely astounded them. Not only at his ruthless logic, but at the fact that nothing he said diminished the authority or the worship of God in any infinitesimal amount. He still ended up putting God right where God belongs. He still ended up demanding of them that they worship and follow after God. He still gave them the answer that took them right back to everything the scripture and the prophets had ever said to them. So even though he was able to answer a political question, he was able to answer it in such a way that it still gave God all the authority, all the praise, all the worship. Okay, so then they send a new group, starting in verse 18. So far, what's the score? Anybody keeping score? For those of you keeping score at home, how many for Jesus? How many for the leaders? Yeah, he's cleaning up on them. Yeah. And some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection. And that's why they're sad, you see? Never mind. I couldn't help but do that. I tried not to. but. And so the Sadducees now are going to take their shot at Jesus and see if they can twist his words at all or test him or put him on trial. So some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to him and began questioning him. The reason that Mark took the time to tell us that they don't believe in the resurrection is that their question is predicated on there being a resurrection. And so since he teaches resurrection, since his followers believe in resurrection, if he can't answer this conundrum, then there must not be a resurrection. So they're trying to get him to agree with their denial of the very thing he teaches. They're trying to trip him up with his own teaching. They said to him, verse 19, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should take the wife and raise up offspring to his brother. That's absolutely true. You can read about that in Deuteronomy 25. That is part of what the law does say. So now they start their hypothetical. Okay, we know that's what the law says. So far, we're in agreement. Now I'm going to pose a hypothetical to you. There were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died, leaving no offspring. And the second one took her and died, leaving behind no offspring. And the third, likewise, this is an unfortunate family. That's all we know. Whatever's happening here in this hypothetical is really sad. Verse 22, and so all seven left no offspring, and last of all, the woman died also. Wasn't that a nice story? (laughs) So here's the big question. Remember, they don't believe in the resurrection. Verse 23, in the resurrection, when they rise again, which one's wife will she be? 
for all seven had her as wife. They think they've just tripped him up. Because either he has to say, well, the marriage covenant was legitimate for that one, but not this one. So she has to be the wife of that one and not these others over here. Or he has to say, oh, you got me. There's no resurrection. I, I, you know that resurrection thing I've been talking about? Okay, that can't be true. They think they've got him caught. Notice what he says. This is just a cutting statement. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you were mistaken? That you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God? Notice what he did. He didn't start with, well, I think. He didn't start with, well, let me explain my teaching to you. Let me explain what I did say and what I really meant. He didn't do any of that. He goes back to, what does the scripture say? And whatever it says, you're responsible for. And the only reason you could ask me a question like that is you have no idea what's going on in your scripture. You don't understand it, you don't get it, and you don't understand the power of God. And you're the religious leaders. Is this not the reason you are mistaken? That you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God? Now he's going to explain what happens in the resurrection at verse 25. But when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. What is the purpose of earthly marriage? Recreation. Very, very good. You said it very quietly. And no one back there heard you. You're very modest. Yes. So that there will be more people. So that people marry and have children and develop more people. But once the resurrection happens, is there still a necessity for that kind of making of offspring? No. The church is made up. The fullness of the church has been complete. Brought to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's done. Israel, if God needs more people to make up Israel in the kingdom... He's already told Ezekiel that he can raise up people from the dry bones. And Jesus has already said that God can raise up Israelites from the rocks. So is there any necessity for marriage at that point? So he says, you just don't understand anything. When they rise from the dead, they don't get married. Nor are they betrothed or given in marriage. They're like the angels in heaven. Angels don't get married. But regarding the fact that the dead rise again, because he understands that the whole question was predicated on the fact that the Sadducees don't believe there is a resurrection, and so they have posed their question based on, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be, so that they can undermine the concept of resurrection. Now he's going to answer them about resurrection in verse 26. But regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses? What's he doing again? Look what he keeps doing. Back to scripture. Back to scripture. Back to scripture. Have you not read it? Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, 
how God spoke to him saying, and now he's going to quote the scripture and quote God. God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, when God said that to Moses, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had already died. They'd already spent their time on earth. And yet God would show up and say, I am, present tense, I am right now, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Here's the question. He's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. In other words, even though Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have died from the planet, they're still alive, or God wouldn't have said that he was the existent, right now, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Which is why Jesus could walk around saying things like, Abraham longed to see my day, and he saw it. Yeah. Then he says, you are stupid. No, okay, that was the Jim translation. I'm sorry, that, sorry. That was me Jimmerizing a verse. He said, you are greatly mistaken. That's just the cleaned up version of, you, you just don't understand. You're really ignorant. You, you read the Bible and you just don't get it. Look, he's told them before, you search the scripture because in them you think you have eternal life. But they are they that testify of me. And if you don't see me in it, you don't get it yet. You don't understand it yet. You're greatly mistaken. You're going through all these little detailed rules and regulations that you can impose on people so that you can have control over people so that you can enrich yourself and engrandize your own name. But you don't understand that that's not the purpose of the scripture. It all in type and shadow is pointing forward to me and I'm right here in your midst right now and you're going to kill me because that's what the scripture says you're going to do. And then I, the stone that the builders rejected, am going to become the chief corner and everything God is doing is built on me and every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess and I'm your judge and you don't put me on trial, I put you on trial. <coughs> Get what he's doing? He's just turning their logic and even correcting their theology so that he is never the one who is on trial. Let's start at verse 28. And one of the scribes heard him arguing and recognizing that he answered them well. So one of the scribes, this one guy, out of the whole crowd, out of the whole group, out of all the different people who have come and tested him, this one guy Jesus is actually going to compliment. He's listening to the arguments from Jesus and he's recognizing those are really good answers. The scribes, the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees, they all thought they were going to trip him up and test him. And he has shut them all up one by one. He has shut them down. He has shut them sideways and shut them any other way you can shut people. And one of the scribes came and heard him arguing and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him, what commandment is the foremost of all? Notice that Mark does not add that he was testing him or that he was trying him. It's a genuine question. It's a sincere question. Well, then help me out. I'm trying to follow the commandments. What's the greatest one? Jesus answered, the foremost is, 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. That's called the Shema. It's the basic declaration of the Old Testament that the Lord our God is one God. Now, I'm not going to get into Trinitarian doctrine at this point, but you will notice that Jesus, who makes himself the Son of God, who accepts worship the way only God can, clearly sees himself as deity, as part of the Godhead, as equal with God. And in fact, the charge that the Jewish leaders are going to charge him with when they kill him is that he has made himself equal with God. So there's no question that they understood Jesus to actually make himself equal with God. So clearly during his ministry, he has said things that make himself equal with God. What does he think of himself? What is his self-conception? He sees himself as equal with God. He sees himself as part of the Godhead. And yet he states, our God is one God. There's no pantheon of gods. All of the other surrounding nations would have believed in various different gods. Egypt has a whole pantheon of gods. The Greeks and the Romans have all their mythology and all their gods and demigods. But the Jews, unique in the Middle East at that point, believed in one God. And he, I think, is correcting any notion that they are objecting to him because he is making himself God. They're saying, well, then you're saying there's more than one God. And the Shema says the Lord our God is one God. So you're saying two is one? And then you're going to talk about the Holy Spirit? And then you're going to liken yourself to the Holy Spirit and say, I will come to you? So you're saying three is one? Yes, that's exactly what he's saying. He's saying three is one. But this is in the context of the fact that God is completely comfortable with paradox. Yes, he can make a stone he couldn't pick up and then pick it up. So God is perfectly comfortable saying three is one. He's perfectly comfortable saying the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one God. Three personalities, one Godhead. Now, our limited human logic can't handle that. Yeah, Aristotelian logic. Yeah, we're just very A equals B, B equals C, therefore A equals C. That's the way we want to think. But when we hear things like 1 plus 1 plus 1 equals 1, we're like, no, that's not math. That doesn't work. But that's God's math. God who created math can supersede his own math. So Jesus confirms to them what they know. The foremost commandment is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Okay, that's the chief command. Why should you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Because he is the only God that is. He's the one who showed up to Moses at the burning bush. And when Moses said, who should I tell Pharaoh sent me? Because Pharaoh's going to ask. When I walk in and say, God says, let my people go. Pharaoh's going to say, what God? Which God? What God are we talking about? You tell Pharaoh, I am. That I am. There's God's explanation of himself. I am 
because I am. I exist because I exist. So you go tell him, that God said, let my people go. So since he is the only God that is, since he is the only God that has successfully achieved isness, then all the other gods isn't. Is not, am not, were not, are not, don't exist. But the one God that exists, Jesus says, love that God with your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. And then if you love him with all your heart, with all your mental faculties, with all your strength, then when you find somebody else that also belongs to him, you're going to love them. So he says, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. That's Jesus talking, the very Son of God, part of the Trinity, part of the Godhead, who said the greatest commandment given to human beings is number one, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength because he is one God. He is the only God that exists. The second is like it. Love your neighbor like yourself. Those are the great commands. And the scribe said to him, Right, teacher, which I find funny. Like the scribe thinks he has the authority to tell Jesus he's right. But he goes, Yeah, right, teacher. You have truly stated that he is one, and there is no one else besides him. And to love him with all your heart and with all your understanding and with all your strength, and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, by the way, the implication is all the previous ones had not answered intelligently. But notice how he answered Jesus. He confirmed the word of God back to Jesus. Jesus told him from the word of God, from the scripture, what the great commandment was. And then the scribe answered him back with that same language. The same scripture. I confirm that scripture. Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently. And he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. He's pretty much shut down the question thing. A couple more verses. Jesus answering said to them, he taught them in the temple. He said, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? That is what the legalists and the scribes would have said. They said the Messiah to come is just going to be an earthly king. He's just going to help us set up the kingdom to come. And he's going to be able to do that because he is the son of David. He's the offspring of David. He's of the lineage of David. But that's all he is. He's not God. He's just simply Messiah to come. And that was a very common form of Jewish thinking at the time. So he asked them, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Because David himself said in the Holy Spirit, and now he's going to quote the scripture again. The Lord said to my Lord, 
sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. So David himself calls him Kurios. How does David call his own son his Lord? Because he's the king. His son would not be his Lord. It would be his offspring. It would be his son. It would be his progeny. But it would never be his master. And yet David referred to him as Lord. So Jesus said, and so in what sense is he just his son? See what Jesus is doing? He's demonstrating again, I'm the son of God. Admit who I am. That even in your scripture, David admitted that his offspring, the Christ, the Messiah, was also going to be his God. That's who I am. And the great crowd enjoyed listening to him. I I really like that verse. Because the common people heard him gladly. He wasn't off-putting. He wasn't walking around condemning people. He was walking around attracting people. And people enjoyed listening to him, not only because he would upend the Pharisees and the scribes and the Herodians, but then he would teach them the important things of heaven that brought them eternal life. How do you not like that? How do you not enjoy the one who came from heaven to tell you about your eternal destiny? The one who says, you don't have to follow the law anymore. Believe in me. Have faith in me. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. How do you not enjoy that? So the great crowd enjoyed listening to him. So in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and they like respectful greetings in the marketplace. They like the cheap seats in the synagogues. They like places of honor at banquets, but they devour widows' houses. And for appearances sake, they offer long prayers. These will receive the greater condemnation. He's just set up the contrast. Me, I'm Lord and Savior. They will devour you. Be aware of them. Be careful of them. That's where we'll pick up next week. So, as I said at the beginning, if you come away with nothing else today, come away with the reality that Jesus never allowed himself to be put on trial. Even when experts at it tried to put him on trial and tried to make him answer them, he was under no obligation, no compunction. He felt no reason to explain himself to them. So the next time people try to put you on trial because you're a Christian and they start questioning your faith and start asking you to defend this Jesus you believe in, prove it to them, Give them some satisfactory answer for why they ought to believe the way you ought to believe? Don't do it. Don't give in to it. Recognize that the absolute sovereign Lord and Savior who bought and saved you is sufficient answer for them. I love the Lord that saved me. He did something for me. I hope he does it for you too. That's a good answer. But as soon, get this right, as soon as you buy into their questions 
they already have the upper hand and you have already admitted that their question was better than your faith and belief in Christ you start putting God in a dock and you start having to defend him and answer for him don't do it he is absolute Lord master and authority and they will learn that at some point either positively or negatively but when they ask for evidence everything we've been reading in Mark so far is Jesus constantly giving his apostles evidence of who he is and what does Mark tell us every time they didn't get it so no amount of evidence is going to convince somebody the Holy Spirit has to convince people and no amount of your arguing and no amount of your defense and no amount of your evidence can convince the unconvincible but what you will do is lessen Christ's authority to bring him down to the point where they're allowed to put him on trial don't do it he didn't do it don't think you're better than him and start doing it for him he's a big boy he can defend himself make sense okay questions yes sir we had a conversation he said I could never serve a God who killed all of his Egyptian children they were all innocent and my wife gave him a wonderful answer she said we love our God and we wish you could too we love our God and we wish you could too is the right answer and actually I like your answer better but I've had people say things like that to me I could never worship a God like you believe in. And I always say to them, that's correct, you couldn't. Yeah. Then you the mic. Anything else? We're okay? All right, good. Mike is going to come forward and conduct our prayer time. Say goodbye to the internet congregation. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates and our ever-expanding archives. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His Sovereign Grace.